your Bible. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. When I, when I started college a hundred years ago and got into my first college English class, I discovered, to my horror, what many freshmen in college discover, and that is that they should have been paying attention in high school. And uh, I, I think then, then we were on a quarter system, that's how far back it was, but the first quarter was English comp. Now, I could do fine with the writing. You got two grades in English comp then, one for content, one for grammar and punctuation. I'd make an A on one, I'd make an F on the other. Now, it took me three times to get through the first quarter of college English. I never failed it, but I got two incompletes and then finally passed it because we'd get, you know, 10 days into the quarter and I was like an hour into the quarter, you know. So I'd run up to the registrar's office and I would drop the course. And then when I, when I got into theological school and got into my first Greek class, I discovered as well that I wished I had paid more attention in English because parts of speech and punctuation and those things are also very important there. Uh, and knowing those better would have helped me tremendously in learning the original language of the New Testament. I said last week, that one important aspect of Bible interpretation, maybe the most important, is context. Now, I think it's a great thing to study and know the original languages of the Bible, uh, but if you do not know them, you can still have a very good understanding of the words because there are learned men who have translated the Bible into English, and uh, if you pay attention to the context, with me, if you will, at verse 11 and 12, and then let's read this and skip the parentheses. For God shows no partiality, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. 
on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus if you skip verses 13, 14 and 15 you retain the thought of the passage verses 13, 14 and 15 are a parenthesis does not mean they're not important but it does have to do with how you're going to interpret this particular section of scripture because verse 16 does not refer back to verse 15 but back to verse 12 remember that I said that one of the important things that you have to remember about this section of the book of Romans that begins at verse 18 of chapter 1 and goes to verse 20 of chapter 3 is that God is not talking, Paul is not talking about justification. He's not talking about salvation. He is talking about judgment. He is talking about condemnation. He is talking about the wrath of God. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm a little on uh, shaky ground here because most, most Bible commentators take these verses that I read this morning and they approach them from two major viewpoints. One is Paul's talking about a hypothetical man. What if a man could keep the whole law? Or if a Gentile could keep the law? And of course no one does. That was the view of John Calvin and of Martin Luther, two of the greatest Bible scholars, of course, in the history of the church. And then the other major viewpoint is that Paul is talking about a justified believer one who does not keep the law perfectly, but he strives to keep the law. And his obedience is a matter of growth and going forward. That's the viewpoint of many modern commentators, Dr. Thomas Schreiner, uh, Dr. Michael Byrd, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. They all hold to that. So I'm saying that if you follow one of those, fine. You're in good company. You're in the company of great men who have believed the Bible. I just think that given the context of this section, what Paul is talking about, it's better to approach it from the standpoint that he is not talking about justification here. And that, that uh, we'll look at this, but verse 13 doesn't say anyone actually does that. That's just what the law demands. It is not hearing the law that, that makes you righteous. It's doing it. Paul doesn't say anyone actually does that. That's just the demand of the law. So what I, what I want to do this morning is to look at the main argument uh, that is in verses uh, 11, uh, 12, and 16, what I'm calling the principle, and then look at the other part of the text, verses 13, 14, and 15, and since I love alliteration so well, I'm calling that the parentheses, the principle and the parentheses. Isn't that cute? Okay, uh, look at the real principle that we have, which is found in verse 11. God shows no partiality. Literally, it says God does not lift up the face. In other words, Everyone stands before God guilty. They can't look because they know that God's judgment is righteous and holy and just. In the day of judgment, 
God will not have any favorites. Now, remember again what Paul is attempting to do. He's trying to bring, bring everyone <clears throat> under the umbrella of condemnation. And for the Jew, that's difficult because the Jew believed that they were God's favorites. And in a sense, they were. They were God's chosen people. They had been given the law. No one else had been given the law. The foundation of their theology was based upon who they were. But they had forgotten, and that's what Paul is going to talk about later on in the book of Romans, that it was not their ethnicity that, that really counted with God, but he chose them because he chose them, and then they were supposed to follow him and believe him uh, and to keep the law. And when they did not keep it, as was inevitable, you know that because God gave the sacrificial system, then they were to make the proper sacrifices. But the Jew believed that God had a favorite nation, and it was Israel. And the Jews of the first century uh, followed the line of thinking that God loved Israel and he hated everyone else. I've told you before that there were Jewish rabbis who taught that Gentiles were only created so that there would be enough fuel for the fires of hell for all of eternity. And that's the reason that God made them. So Paul has a difficult task here uh, to persuade them that they indeed are sinners. Uh, Paul does not deny the covenantal privileges that Israel enjoyed. As a matter of fact, he will celebrate them. He'll, you know, he'll ask the rhetorical question, is there any advantage to being a Jew? And then he will say, of course there is. They have the law. They, they, they have the Torah. They, they have uh, the privilege of being a nation that God had chosen to give that law to. However, his point here is that those inherited privileges amount to nothing. Covenantal privileges amount to naught apart from covenantal obedience. It is not whether or not you have the law, have you kept the law. If you want to live by the law, okay, but you have to keep it perfectly to satisfy God you cannot have sin in any point no thought no word no deed no action nothing can be outside God's law and 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 Paul is saying if you did not keep the law perfectly then you're under judgment you're under God's wrath the simple statement of verse 12 then elaborates on that principle of verse 11. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. All men are either under the law or they're not. They are either Jew or Greek or Jew or Gentile. The Jew is under the law. The Gentile is not. Remember that in verses 9 and 10, twice Paul has used that phrase for the Jew first and also to the Greek. He uses it a number of times in the book of Romans. So all of mankind is divided up into two classes, Jew, Gentile, under the law, not under the law. Uh, and 
he is making an important point here and one that is made elsewhere in the New Testament and that is that Gentiles were not given the law and so they will not be judged as if they had been. I'm not saying that they're saved and they're free from condemnation but they will not receive the same degree of punishment as those who were given the law. Men will be judged according to the situation that they are in and those who are born outside the law are those who have never heard the gospel will not be judged as if they had heard it. Now again, not hearing the gospel doesn't mean that you are saved. Some people have that idea. You know, I, I had a, I've had discussions with people who've gone to church their whole lives and they're, they're just horrified when I say that. I had one man in Knoxville who just got I mean, he, he got upset, highly upset, that uh, somehow God would judge those and condemn those who had not heard the gospel. And, of course, I pointed out to him immediately, well, then you don't believe in missions, do you? Oh, yeah, I'm strong on missions. I said, well, then why? Because until you go tell those people the gospel, they're fine. But once you preach them the gospel, they're lost and going to hell. You condemn them. Now, not hearing the gospel doesn't mean that you're saved. doesn't mean that, that God excuses you. But he does not judge you as harshly as those who have heard the gospel or those here who had uh, the law. Again, I want to emphasize this again. Paul's not talking about justification here. He's not talking about salvation. He's dealing with a matter of judgment and with the righteous wrath of God. And what matters is not whether or not men have the law, but sin. The Jews tended to think that because they were given the law, they wouldn't come under the judgment of God. But Paul is declaring the truth that that's where God's impartiality comes in. Jews cannot escape the wrath of God simply because they possess the law. Possession is not enough. On the day of judgment, what matters is the question of sin. Makes no difference who you are. Makes no difference what country you are from, who your parents were. It only really matters whether or not you've sinned. As Americans, we have the tendency to think the same way the Jews did. Well, I was born in America, a, quote, Christian nation, which there has never been any such thing, by the way. Individuals are Christians, not nations. But people think, well, I have, I have heard the gospel and uh, uh, I, I, I'm not going to face judgment. That is an eternally flawed, fatal kind of thinking. Uh, but I've heard people say all the years I've been in ministry, well, I, I know I'm saved. I've gone to this church my whole life. My parents went to this church. My grandparents went to this church. I was born in this church. Yeah, well, I heard about some kittens that was born in a breadbasket, but that didn't make them biscuits. You, it doesn't matter. You see, God shows no partiality. God is not interested whether or not you've heard the gospel, but rather have you believed it and have you obeyed it? Has the direction of your life turned around? Are you moving in a different direction? Do you have a different attitude towards sin? 
Notice the, notice the terms that Paul uses that I believe confirms this principle of judgment without partiality. Notice what he says. All who have sinned without the law will what? Perish without the law. The word perish refers to punishment for sin. It does not mean annihilation. It does not mean to go out of existence. It is the opposite of eternal life. It is the same as everlasting destruction. And everlasting destruction doesn't mean annihilation. It doesn't mean to go out of existence. It means to go for all of eternity to that place where Jesus described as where the fire does not die or the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Uh, but then notice the change of word in the last part of verse 12. He had said, all who are under the law will perish, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Perish without the law, judged by the law. Uh, all who have sinned without the law will perish. All who have sinned with the law will be judged. Why the difference? I think the only explanation is that God holds the Jew to a more severe standard than he does the Gentile. Now, it makes no difference as to their ultimate destiny again, but he does seem to indicate that there will be a difference in punishment, that there are degrees of punishment in hell. Paul is going to say that the Gentiles have the works of the law written on their hearts, but they have not received it in an external, objective manner. The Jews had received it. It had been defined, codified for the Jews. It had been made perfectly plain and clear. There was no excuse for their sin. So far from escaping judgment, the Jew who possesses the law but does not keep it will be judged more harshly. Jesus himself taught this truth in several places in the New Testament. Luke chapter 12 is one of them. He's talking about two classes of servants, and he makes a distinction between them. And he says, that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe blessing. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So, let's be clear about this. The sinful Gentile and the sinful Jew will go together to perdition. Paul has already said there is enough evidence in creation to know that God exists and that he has all power. And men reject that light of creation. And they form for themselves idols of gold and wood and silver, or they worship the creation itself. And so they are without excuse. They are condemned. But the clear teaching, I think, of these verses and many others indicate that the degree of the punishment and suffering for sins will be greater for those who did not have the law and for those who have not heard the gospel. All of us are in trouble because every time you hear the gospel, your responsibility to obey it is increased. 
Those who have been given much, much will be required. Those people in the Western world who have repeatedly heard the gospel and who have rejected it will, held to be, will be held to a far higher standard than someone who's never heard the gospel. Then the teaching of verse 16. All of this will take place on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Notice again, this is a fixed period of time. The day of judgment is fixed. It is coming with absolute certainty. And then notice it is Christ Jesus who is the judge. He is not only the Savior, he is the judge. And those who will not receive him as one will meet him as the other. And he will appoint the final destiny of all men. This is clearly stated in many places in the New Testament. For instance, in John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And then again down in verse 26 of John 5, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. That is exactly what Paul is saying here. Christ Jesus is the judge, and he is going to appoint the final destinies of the two groups either the resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation. His judgment will be absolutely righteous and fair because it will be according to works. It is also important to note that Christ will judge the secrets of men. That's a terrifying thought. I have had thoughts in my life just in the last week that I wouldn't tell anyone on earth because they're so horrible because they're so wicked they're so sinful and I find myself thinking them and then immediately oh Lord please forgive me and I'm thankful no one but you knows that but Jesus Christ will judge men not only by their actions but by their secrets. Remember that Jesus said in the book of Matthew that on the day of judgment, men will give an account for every idle word that they have spoken. Now that's frightening too. Think of all the idle, vain, empty words that we speak in our lives. Notice that this judgment then will be, he says, according to my gospel. So the gospel includes judgment. The gospel includes perishing. The gospel includes the disclosure of all the secrets that men hold. So there is the principle. God shows no partiality. And men will be judged whether they have the law or not. It is not the possession of the law that matters. It's keeping it. It's not hearing the gospel that matters. It's believing it and living in the truth of it on a daily basis. 
So now let's go back and look at the parentheses. He begins this parenthetical section with another reference to the law and by inference to the Jew. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It is not possession of the law that counts, but obedience to it. Now notice again, this verse simply tells us what the law demands. It does not say anywhere in it that anyone actually does this. And of course they do not. We know that from the rest of Scripture and we know that from experience. There have been men who've read this, taking it total out, totally out of context, will then say, aha, you see, there it is. Men can be justified by their works. If they are doers of the law, they're justified. Well, yeah, but they don't do the law. You remember again what Jesus told the young man who came and asked about the law? What, or the lawyer who said, you know, what is the law? Could be all summed up, he said. Two things, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do that and live. No one can do that. I doubt very seriously where I've done that one moment of my existence, much less for the entirety of my life. I tell you, the more that I read the Bible, the more I'm convinced that if there is no grace, then it is hell for everyone, especially for me. If, if the gospel is not true, there's no chance for anybody because no one can keep that commandment or those two commandments. No one loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment of their existence. Most of the time I love myself above everything else. I guess you didn't think you were going to come to hear what a wicked fellow your pastor was today, but there it is. Uh, he says then, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Verses 14 and 15 deal once again with the Gentiles, or both parties really, the Jew first and the Gentile as well. And he is anticipating that some will say uh, that since the Gentile was not given the law, then he should not come under condemnation. And Paul's answer is, even though they didn't have the law, they were not innocent. It is true that they have not been given the law as Moses gave the law to the Jews, but that does not mean that they are free. That does not mean they should not come under condemnation. It does not mean that they are automatically justified before God. For he says, the Gentiles have not received the law, but they are a law unto themselves. Now, what's he mean by that? I think he simply means that even though they've never heard the law, they have a sense of moral consciousness. In every society that has ever been discovered on the face of the earth, men have a sense of moral consciousness. Always. 
there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. Uh, so Paul says they are responsible. And they will be judged as to how they responded to that moral consciousness. First, he says, they show the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now, he does not say the law is written on their hearts. Sometimes people read this and say, oh, you know, there's Gentiles who have the law written on their hearts. That's not what he says. He says it's the work of the law. A law is meant to produce certain results. And it is negative and positive. The law says, for instance, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie. In other words, and then there, there's things you do not do. And then there's things you do. Love your neighbor. Care for one another. Lift one another's, uh, bear one another's burden. So the law, the things of the law, is concerned with what is written on their hearts because again in every pagan race on earth people refrain from doing certain things they have standards you can't kill you can't rape you can't steal they have that standard all of those things are presumed to be wrong so there is that sense of moral consciousness and then he says their conscience also bears witness the conscience is a faculty that is present in all human beings. It is an inward monitor that tells us that certain things are wrong and we should not do them. It is not a perfect instrument and it must be informed by Holy Scripture and led by the Holy Spirit because, you know, Paul says that all the things that he did, you know, dragging Christians out of homes, putting them to death, doing all of that, he said that he did all of that in good conscience. So he found out his conscience was wrong, that his conscience had led him to do bad things, that some of them were very, very wrong. So the conscience is an inward faculty that tells us certain things are wrong. You can't do that. You don't do that. Uh, the conscience, again, must be informed by Scripture and enlightened by the Spirit. But all men have a conscience. And they know what it means to be condemned by it. And then thirdly, he says, their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. The word thoughts here really means their reasoning. Uh, and he said, in effect, you know the Gentiles who've never heard the law of Moses often have arguments among themselves over whether or not a certain thing is right or whether it's wrong. Not only that, but they have discussions and debates about whether or not a certain man has done something that is right or wrong. So they accuse and excuse. The same thing that he started out chapter 2 with. They accuse others and then they excuse themselves. You know, we accuse others, we excuse ourselves. I've noted over the last several years especially this in politics in America. When one party is in power, they do whatever they want. And the other party screams bloody murder. That's wrong. You can't do that. We're righteous. We wouldn't. And then they get in power and they do exactly the same thing. And the other side 
screams bloody murder. That's wrong. We wouldn't do that. We're too virtuous. Yeah, right. You see, we do the same thing. Paul has already talked about this in chapter 2. We, we accuse others and we excuse ourselves. Yeah. Well, so-and-so's a liar. Oh, what about you told us, oh, I did that so I wouldn't hurt their feelings. That, so that really, that really wasn't a lie. Well, so-and-so's a thief. Yeah, but you, you, you claim 14 dependents on your, uh, on your income tax return, and 12 of them was dogs. Well, I know, but, you know, it's the government. And so, you know, stealing from the government's not like stealing from people. Okay. They accuse, they excuse. They cannot say in the day of judgment they did not have a standard to go by. If they are accusing and excusing, they have a standard. So Paul is simply saying that on the day of judgment, it's not a matter of whether or not you have the law. It's a question of sin. And God will not show partiality he will condemn those who have the law because they have not kept it and he will condemn those who have a sense of moral consciousness and a conscience but they have violated they have not lived up to the light that they had and again in these verses he is not talking about salvation he is not talking about justification he is not saying that there's anyone who's ever kept the law or that there is anyone who can keep the law again look carefully at verse 13 he simply says this is what the law demands he is not saying that anyone has actually done it and the next verse tells us that Gentiles do certain things that the law demands even though it was not given to them in an external objective manner but the work of it is written on their hearts but they do not do all that that demands. They do not live up to the light that they have. All of this section is to assert the truth that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is a perfect standard and it tells us that we are imperfect and again I can't keep the law I don't keep the law and yet God demands the keeping of the law what am I to do because God knew that he came as Jesus Christ to this earth and he lived a perfect life and he kept the law perfectly. He never wavered. He never broke the law in deed, in action, in word, or thought. He kept it perfectly. And then he went to a cross and he died. He died not only physically, but he died spiritually because he took the wrath of God for all who will believe. He paid the penalty of the broken law for me 
He paid the penalty of the broken law if you will receive him. Believe on him. Repent of sin and find the gift of eternal life. The wages of sin is death to be eternally separated from God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for this word. Now sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Amen.